It's PNN. I'm your host, Brooke Hines. It's Sunday, May 23, 2021. It's almost summertime. It's close enough. I hope everyone has a lot of plans for this weekend, which is Memorial Day weekend. I'm already thinking about hot dogs, you know, crap food that you grill out when you have a sunburn. That's what I want. That's all I want for Memorial Day is a sunburn and some crap food. Okay, this week we have a show. We have a basic show for you. Uh, we have Janine Moloff this week on the Justice Report with voter suppression, constitutional crimes, and COVID Karens in Missouri. Missouri, of course, being the sister state to Florida. It's the same thing. It's in the heartland. We're on the coast. It's it's all the same thing. We are run by pretty much the same people. It seems like uh, Missouri is a few years behind us in terms of the just fuckery that is getting thrown at them from their state legislature. Janine's here to break it down and talk about it. We also have uh, stuff that I'm going to talk about. But first, I just want to thank Janine and uh, Rick for covering for me last week. And I think the week before, I can't remember, but I have been feeling under the weather and uh, people... Uh, stepped right up and uh, lent a hand and I really needed it and wow it really it's really awesome when you got friends who've who've got your back so thank you you guys so much Uh, this week I want to cover some stuff that I was going to cover last week and the week before and it's not that the notes have grown stale it's that uh, things have been flushed out even more in the intervening time so I've got a piece on uh I want to talk about where the hell COVID came from, but I also want to talk about why it's okay to talk about that now. So it's, it's a, it's kind of a media criticism, but it's also, it's also science. So we need to, let's look at this. This is interesting stuff. And we also have some things to talk about with regard to um, our economic situation as people, you know, what's going on with unemployment insurance, what's going on with getting people back to work and uh, how, how that's all shaking out. So I got that coming up right here in just a moment, but first. Just a note, I am avoiding the topic of Israel's aggression towards Palestine right now because you know what, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do any better on that topic than the amazing people who are already covering it. Nothing I have to say right now, at least right now, is any better than Uh, some of the amazing journalists out there that I hope you are reading. So uh, check out the electronicintifada.net. Check out Gray Zone as usual. And seek out your own sources on this because right now 
mainstream media is just not covering it. They're not cutting it. They're not covering it. They're just, <sighs> it's just a mess. But um, I don't have a lot to, that is value to pass on to you on that, except to commiserate with the listener in terms of uh, this is painful to watch. And I know this is painful to watch for all of us on the left. And um, we had a near disaster averted earlier this week, we're at dinner with uh, the in-laws and my mother-in-law, my mother-in-law perks up and out of nowhere. She says, Hey, you talked about politics on your show on Sunday night. Um, what it, and she, she started in, she started with Israel. It, it, she got the word Israel out before my husband like jumped up and said, Nope, no, no, no. We are not talking about Israel, Palestine. Not tonight, not here. Um, it was actually my father-in-law's birthday and, uh, it was, it was really quick thinking on behalf of my husband. So thank you for the bailout there. I was not, I was not, uh, a few nights ago, I was still feeling a little bit of this malaise. And so I was not keeping up. I was getting ready to get into that conversation with my in-laws and it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have gone well. Um, thank God, thank God that between us, we, we, we have a brain that, that is, uh, functioning. Uh, but that, that would have been bad. I gotta tell you, we went out this week for the very first time since lockdown. We went out for the very first time to, uh, to sit down and have food out. We went to a restaurant that has a, a patio and we were one of three tables outside on this very large patio. It was very enjoyable. And I got to tell you, the next day when I got home, uh, I absolutely had to worry about whether or not anybody was exposed to anything. Um, the whole family has been vaccinated except for myself. I have been on prednisone for these things that keep keep bringing me down, you know? And uh, so as soon as I'm off the prednisone and we're in the uh, we're in the safe zone, uh, then then I I will do that. But until then, I I'm not vaccinated yet. Now, I want to mention this, and this is a kind of a segue into the first my my first story tonight. Uh, while we were there, I couldn't help but notice that that the restaurant was a little. It was a little like, um, it was like they'd been on summer vacation, you know, and were just hadn't quite gotten back on their feet. So there was like a lot of things that were just, uh, you know, like, 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 let me put it this way. Everything was fabulous. It was great. We had a great time, but you could tell that there was, uh, some, there was a little bit of struggle to keep up. Uh, it's not that it was um, packed or anything like that, but there was like these weird uh, shortages of things. Like there wasn't any sugar for for coffee there. Uh, we So we got simple syrup from the bar. Just fine. Just fine. Uh, also, no half and half. So uh, we had to have we had to substitute uh, skim milk. Not OK. That is not OK. 
skim milk and half and half are not the same thing. You might as well just be watering down your, your coffee. I feel very strongly about this. Um, but, uh, so our, our wait staff was very cool, nice guy. Uh, and you know, took care of us really well toward the end of the, um, dinner, I forget who it was at the table, you know, said, Hey, you're doing just such a great job. I'm so glad that, that, that you were our waiter, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and they started kind of chatting about, um, the restaurant being shorthanded. And he said, as a very young person working for waiters money, you know, in a, in, in Orlando, he says, well, maybe once unemployment runs out, or the state cuts off unemployment, then we'll get more people to work here. And oh, I don't know what my in-laws were thinking. You know, they're 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 not a cut of the same political cloth as as me and my husband. But I know we were both looking up at this guy, going, oh, "You didn't have to say that for our benefit." I hope you don't believe that. You know, come on, have a little bit of self-respect as a worker. Anyway, that kind of broke my heart. I gotta tell you that, that that really broke my heart. Um, no, no, cutting people off of uh, unemployment. That's not how you get people to go back to work. You know, you can't starve them out. You you can't smoke them out of the hole. You know, you can't starve them out of their homes to go work for you for crap wages. Sorry, sorry, you can't do it. That's that that's that's not all right. Um, that's what they're gonna do, though. That that's exactly what they're gonna do. And I and, and I gotta tell you, it's it's not just it's not just because of quarantine. It's not just because of the pandemic. Uh, corporations and, and and businesses would still be engaging in slavery if if they freaking could, and they would say, "Oh, it's the right thing to do for the bottom line." You know, they will take advantage of of any way they can to pay less and uh, make more profit unless it comes down to paying the CEO less. You know, in that case, you know, forget about it. They are going to make 400 times, 500 times, 800 times what their average worker makes. And and, and look you straight in the eye and say that they're not the reason why, why uh, you know, their, their business isn't making any money. It's because those workers making, you know, $12 an hour or whatever it is. So on this subject, Jake Johnson over at commondreams.org has a piece up entitled attempting to starve people back to work anger grows as GOP governors cut off jobless benefits meanwhile the Biden administration is under fire for claiming it is powerless to prevent states from ending the 300 a week weekly unemployment boost and of course, this is what this is what our wage staff was was talking about. And uh, millions of workers, Jake Johnson writes, uh, in Republican-led states across the U.S. are growing increasingly worried that they soon won't be able to afford rent, medicine, and other basic necessities as GOP governors rush to cut off pandemic-related unemployment benefits. The widely condemned attack on struggling people um, that the Biden administration insists it is powerless to stop. 
I'm just getting so tired of this Biden administration already. Uh, as of this writing, 22 Republican governors have moved to withdraw from a federal program that boosted regular unemployment checks by $300 a week. Now, you gotta, you gotta wonder. Um, there are other uh, f uh, federal, there are other provisions in this uh, legislation, in this COVID legislation, that created the $300 a week uh, that people have been getting federally. So, you know, this, this bill also provided for, uh, vaccines. It provided lots of other goodies for big business. You gotta, you gotta wonder how come they're not, they don't, they're not instituting sanctions related to the other pieces in the legislation. And that's, uh, that's the criticism that Biden is batting away here. He's saying, no, no, my hands are tied. And yet it doesn't seem that they're tied. It just sort of seems that he's, uh, making excuses here. So Florida is not alone in this. It's also, uh, Republican leaders from Texas, Georgia, Alabama, Arkansas, South Dakota. They have all falsely claimed that federal unemployment programs are so generous that $300 a week is so generous uh, that they are, that it is dissuading people from rejoining the workforce. Uh, this narrative uh, that ignores a slew of other rev relevant factors um, from low wages uh, to lack of childcare um, to health concerns, you know, they're, they're just going to make it so that life is unbearable for everyone except for the absolute ruling class. And things are going to get interesting at that point. They're already pretty interesting. Uh, many are asking whether expanded unemployment benefits are damaging the labor market by keeping workers from taking jobs. There is no compelling evidence of this, said Heidi Shareholts of the Economic Policy Institute, the EPI. Nevertheless, many Republican-led states are preparing to cancel pandemic unemployment insurance benefits. This will not just hurt workers who can't find work right now. It will hurt the economy in these states because these benefits are supporting spending. It's terrible economics. Now, according to the Century Foundation, 3.6 million jobless workers uh, across 22 Republican-led states are set to lose a combined total of $21.7 billion in benefits due to GOP governor's efforts, which will begin to take effect as soon as June the 12th, nearly three months before unemployment programs are set to expire on September 6th. This is just nasty, just nasty. They are going to take the the the, the money. They're they're just going to rip it out of you know people's hands so that so that people are forced into a labor market that number one maybe they're not ready to go back into because of health concerns. Maybe they can't get back into because of childcare concerns. And definitely a lot of people are not ready to get back into it because, uh, you know, maybe, maybe just maybe you were somebody who was an office worker who was making $70,000 a year and you have $70,000 a year of, of, uh, expenses and a $15 an hour job, if you could find it, you know, more likely a $12 an hour job in Florida, uh, it, it just isn't going to cut it and you're not qualified for it and so on and so forth. 
And here's someone who says exactly that. Mary Baker, a jobless worker in Texas, told the Texas Tribune on Friday uh, that I got a knot in the pit of my stomach because I just don't know how I'm going to make it work. Uh, she was recalling emotions as she listened to GOP Governor Greg Abbott announced that the state is ending the federal $300 a week boost. Uh, she says, I can't just go take a $12 an hour job. That's going to stop unemployment, but it's not going to pay my bills. So it'll stop her unemployment benefits, but it won't pay her bills. Said Baker, who told the Tribune that she will likely have to stop buying her insulin and cut back on groceries to make ends meet. Said uh, Nicole Fugit, a Tennessee resident who worked in childcare before the pandemic hit, she told The Guardian that she is, quote, really anxious and in a panic state from the announcement of Governor, uh, Republican Governor Bill Lee of Tennessee. She says, I can't believe this would happen during a pandemic. These benefits were the only thing helping me get by, says Fugit. I'm going to be without a phone, a car, gas, groceries, and money to pay my for my medication. Again, twice, twice we've heard about medication. I'm currently in between housing as well. Everyone has just been surviving as best they can. A majority of us don't have medical insurance, let alone a safety net of savings to fall back on. And so Bernie Sanders has been trying to do something about that. In a letter to Labor Secretary Mar Marty Walsh, uh, Bernie argues that the Biden administration has both a moral and a legal obligation to keep distributing benefits under the pandemic unemployment programs, which are funded entirely by the federal government. He says, Workers who lack access to child care have lost employer-sponsored health insurance and fear for their health and safety as we work to get every American vaccinated are entitled to these benefits. They will be forced into poverty either with poor jobs, with unfair wages, or no income at all if you fail to provide these benefits. Side note, we were fucking robbed, you know. Uh, there, there was only one vote that mattered in the primaries, and that was Barack Obama's. We could have had this person a, a, as president, and we would have been so much better off. I firmly believe that Bernie was the only off-ramp to uh, the disaster that we are headed towards. But, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, the National Employment Law Project, NELP, sketched out a similar argument in a letter to Walsh earlier this month. If the Labor Department fails to guarantee that eligible people continue receiving benefits, the group argued, the agency, quote, will not only cause significant harm to our most vulnerable, it will be in direct violation of their duty to provide PUA, PUA benefits under the CARES Act, a coronavirus relief law, coronavirus relief law enacted in March. But unnamed Biden administration officials have told media outlets in recent days that their hands are tied, claiming that any effort by the Labor Department to compel states to distribute benefits or send out the aid itself would be illegal. There is nothing we can do, one anonymous administration official told CNN on Thursday. Well, and apparently they can't even, uh, you know, speak to anybody on the record. Bunch of fucking cowards. Uh, so uh, 
According to the Washington Post, the Biden administration has scrambled to devise ways to keep paying heightened unemployment benefits to an estimated 3.6 million Americans who stand to lose them, blah, 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 blah. So, so much so, I am so sure. This article wraps up with a quote from uh, uh, someone from the Center for Popular Democracy saying that the president and Department of Labor have an obligation to provide benefits whether states want it or not. And it's shameful, shameful, uh, the person says, if they don't do that. And uh, you know what? The Biden administration doesn't care. They're unnamed sources that talk to CNN and MSNBC or whatever. They don't give a shit either. Uh we also found out this week, here's a story from the Washington Post, that the White House budget plan, you know, there are there are two there were two big budget bills this this year. So these are going to go through the reconciliation process in uh in the Senate. These are the, you know, that's budgetary, okay? So they were, they, they, these were broken into two parts. And we were told all, all along that all of that stuff that we wanted to see in the first bill, that was being saved. It was being saved for later, like dessert. You wanted to save it for later. And so it's going to go into the second one, right? You know, things like, uh, like uh, Medicare for all or um, lowering uh, uh, student loans, getting rid of student loan debt or a certain amount of student loan debt for people. And so we find out from the Washington Post in a teeny tiny little piece uh, that came out earlier this week that the, guess what? Biden has no intention, none, no intention of uh, setting out any kind of health care proposal or student loan proposal in this next budgetary uh, rounds. The, the White House, in fact, has jettisoned months of planning from agency staff as their initial plan could fuel criticisms that the administration is pushing new spending programs too aggressively. Oh, my goodness, you wouldn't want the ruling classes to be left uncomfortable by anyone being taken care of. Um, so health care, you know, cost of insulin, you know, all you got, you, you guys can die. Whether you, it, it, it listen. You guys living is basically making the ruling class uncomfortable. Do you, do you understand that? Do you understand how you're just existing is making rich people uncomfortable? So we're just going to make sure that, uh, that uh, you die as soon as possible. Um, uh, it, you really couldn't die quickly enough. Uh, according to the Biden administration, um, because there are some rich people who are uncomfortable. So, you know, that just, their hands are tied. There's nothing they can do. Um, I wish you people would just see that. Uh, instead, the president's budget will focus on advancing uh, a legislative agenda that he's already put forward earlier this year. The budget won't propose any new initiatives, but will put together the full picture of how these proposals would advance economic growth and shared prosperity while also putting our country on a sound fiscal, fiscal course. 
We are about five seconds away from hearing nonstop uh, uh, budget deficit, balance the budget, ban and stack budget. We got to give some money, but we also got to give a whole bunch of money to the military because uh, something, something is going to happen and then uh, blah, 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 support the troops and you guys can all go fuck yourselves. So that's where we're at. Congratulations on your votes for Biden. You've really not achieved anything, but you know, I'm sure you feel better about yourself for having done that. Moving on. Let's see, what do we got here? Moving on, we have a story that I have been following now for quite some time. I'm going to take a little break and we are going to come right back with that. There's been a U-turn. All of a sudden, it's okay to talk about the lab leak hypothesis with regard to coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, whatever you want to call it. Um, you might remember that I talked a lot about this in 2020. I talked about this very early on in 2020, uh, about how um, uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, uh, just this uh, biosafe biosafety laboratory uh, four is right in the middle of where this new pandemic broke out. That's very fishy. We need to look into that because obviously if that's where this pandemic broke out, I mean, it's, if I had to choose between the, uh, the brand new BSL four and a market that has been selling you know, wildlife for decades, uh, for a, a new pandemic, uh, my money is on the Institute of Virology. It just is. Um, and that comes from having a, uh, a being conscious I mean, just literally being conscious and also being consciously aware that uh, that uh, BSL-3s, BSL-4s all over the world are problematic. There are safety issues at every single one of them. And as a matter of fact, Fort Detrick here in the United States, supposedly one of the best ones in the world, uh, had to shut down in 2019 because it had a problem. So problems happen at these BSL-4s, biosafety laboratories. Uh, it's one, two, three, and four. And the higher the number, the um, more stringent the security is supposed to be. Um, so I share, I've been sharing stories all year long. And I know that I know that this is a um, distressing to some people who might be of the uh, uh, imagination that uh, only, only Republicans would think something like that, or only, only, only Trumpers would, would, uh, would, would question or, or want to know the, the, the truth of the origins of COVID. 
And so this week we've got, we get a lot of really good information. There is this piece that um, is in the Critic UK. And this is a, this is a really good summation of the discourse. This is a, this is a piece around the discourse of the origin of, of COVID. And so um, viable, it starts out, viable. That was the word chosen by 18 senior scientists this week to describe the idea that COVID-19 virus didn't jump from an animal to a human in Wuhan's wet markets, but somehow escaped from a lab in the city's Institute of Virology. In a letter in the most recent issue of Science Magazine, the group said that, quote, we must take the hypothesis about both the natural and laboratory spillovers seriously until we have sufficient data. And the reason why that's in Science Magazine and scientists are saying it is because that's what you're supposed to do in science. But previous to this, what we hadn't been doing was science. Previous to this, we had been letting... Uh, uh, and encouraging those with a conflict of interest to be in charge of deciding whether or not uh, the lab leak hypothesis or the wet market hypothesis were the ones to go with. And I'm speaking specifically of EcoHealth Alliance, which is uh, uh, the uh, uh, senior, the senior person from EcoHealth Alliance is a man by the name of Peter Danzak. So Peter Danzak was on both. There's only been two studies of the origins of SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus COVID-19. Only two that, that, that have had any kind of impact at all. One has been by the World Health Organization and the other was by the Lancet. EcoHealth Alliance and Peter Danzak, who have major financial stake and, and reputational stake in this question, they, that person was on the board, was, on, was making decisions on both of those investigations. Both of those investigations need to be thrown out the window and we need to start all over with a clean slate, actually doing science, collecting data and and, and interpreting the data in a non-political and, you know, non-influenced by money way. All right. It only makes sense. Now, uh, there's been a really good article in Current Affairs. This is our, uh, that wonderful Nathan J. Robinson writing, oh, this was 47 pages printed out, uh, and this is called, let me scroll back up, um, The Stakes of Finding COVID-19's Origins. Everyone in the U.S. should want to know whether U.S.-funded research could have caused the pandemic. Now, this piece comes on the heels of another very important publication. This is Nicholas Wade writing in uh, the, bulletin, the Bulletin of Atomic Sciences. And this piece right here, which is also about 40 pages printed out, The Origins of COVID, Did People or Nature Open Pandora's Box at Wuhan? The Nicholas Wade article came out May the 5th, which is right about the time I started getting sick. Um... Uh, and uh, the Nathan J. Robinson thing came out about a week later. Nope, the 14th. So about 10 days later. Uh, 
almost everybody is referring back to the Nicholas Wade piece. Now, the Nicholas Wade piece uh, is a little bit more jargony and it's a little bit more like in the vein of scientists talking to scientists, but it's not, uh, it's not outside of any normal adult's ability to read and go through it, except for the fact that it's very long. And it's, uh, it's, listen, 40 pages printed out isn't actually like that super long, uh, altogether. And the data in here, the information in here, the, 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 the narrative is super freaking important. Okay. So what's remarkable here is that Wade's article as Nathan J. Robinson underscores, uh, it seems to be that U.S. government-funded research created the pandemic. Now, one of the reasons that has been put forward that we are not supposed to be talking about the origin of, of SARS-CoV-2 coming from Wuhan and the Wuhan Institute of Virology, one of the reasons stated or unstated, one of the reasons just hanging out there is that if you say that the... Uh, contagion came from China, then that would fuel anti-Asian hatred. And what I don't understand is why can't we just deal with uh, the hatred issues? Like, let's just deal that on, with that on its own, regardless of, you know, you know, we, we can't make science contingent on the racist stereotypes that that the worst among us have. So, you know, let's just deal with that as a separate issue. Another thing that people have been saying is that, um, and this is pointed out in, in the uh, critic article, is that the or just talking about the origins of, of SARS-CoV-2 is to give in to a dangerous Republican lie. And it's to give in to Trump talking points and Tom Cotton cotton point talking points or cotton points. Um, and so what we've been getting recently since this Wade article came out and people just can't refuse any longer that the science is there and the data is there, the, that we have to take this seriously. Now people are starting to say things like, uh, like, oh, now we're, we're depoliticizing the, uh, or, or we're attempting to depoliticize the the lab leak hypothesis, and and we're we're going to deign to uh, to consider it, you know, now that now that it's been like a year and a and a couple of months, uh, you had a uh, Vox Media um, kind of pat themselves on the back. Uh, by saying that, uh, or patting New York Magazine on the back for bringing the lab leak hypothesis into the mainstream. I shared the, the New York Magazine article um, earlier with you guys. Uh, Josh Rogan at the, at the Washington Post is one of the few dissenting voices inside of the liberal establishment that took the lab leak hypothesis seriously from the very beginning. Um, last April, he reported on safety issues at the Wuhan lab raised in diplomatic cables that were uh, uh, distributed, that were communicated two years earlier. Now, I shared that article with you guys when it came out. If you're interested 
By the way, if you're interested in U.S.-China relations or the geopolitics of the pandemic, Rogan's new book, Chaos Under Heaven, is pretty pretty good. Um, we also have we also have this 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 kind of like backward engineering of, of discourse. So you've got Vox uh, quietly editing its coverage of the lab leak theory. Um, a year ago, uh, uh, the the uh, header on their website read. Quote, the emergence of the virus in the same city as China's only level four biosafety lab, it turns out, is pure coincidence. It has been changed to read the emergence of the virus in the same city as China's only level four biosafety lab, it turns out, appears to be pure coincidence. It's not even like they're fully embracing, you know, like the whole like idea of science. And let's just be honest, that's not what Vox is about. Vox exists to serve the ruling class. And, you know, whatever is more convenient for people with money, Vox is going to follow that, that, that opinion. Um, you know, go to Vox if you want to see what the ruling class and what people with money really need you to believe. Like, like it's a really good place if you're going to deconstruct what what people with money want you and need you to believe uh, coming from a, a liberal standing point. Other than that, they're they're not not worth much at all. Uh, articles have been deleted. Tweets have been deleted. Ex, uh, excuses are, are everywhere. People have been uh, just wild about the the lab leak hypothesis and um you see people like David Frum in The Atlantic saying that, that that liberals have to get out in front of the lab leak hypothesis now to, quote, deny Trump or Trump dead enders the culture war weapon that they want. And this is the, this kind of goes with the uh, with the uh, anti-Asian American hatred is, you know, instead of just dealing with that on its own, because you ought to deal with that on its own. You just ought to. Um, they want this to be a peace culture war, and they've wanted this to be a peace in the culture war for quite some time. And so, and so instead of, uh, you, you know, trying to stop this from happening again or establishing culpability for those who have suffered from the pandemic or, 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 or looking for truth because it's, it, it's a good in itself. And that's an end in itself. That's worthwhile. Instead of that, we have uh, David from and, and, and Democrats saying that you should take the lab leak hypothesis seriously in order to deny your opponents a win. And, you know, I know that I've come close to using that argument because I will use absolutely any argument at this point to try and get people to see the light on this thing. But we have been told a lie for a very long time about this. And it's it's just time. We've we've got to get to the bottom of this. We we deserve the truth. Uh, people who lost family members and people who have died, we deserve the truth and we don't deserve to be lied to uh, and, and treated like children. Here is how Nathan J. Robinson describes the Wade article. He says the uh, recent article in the Bulletin of Atomic Sciences Scientist by science journalist Nicholas Wade makes a forceful argument that COVID-19 did, in fact, escape from a lab. And, you know, kind of revealing this, this 
this kind of he treats it like a guilty pleasure. Like he knows, he knows he wasn't supposed to read this. He knows that this is coloring outside of the lines. And so he says, I began reading it with mild curiosity. It contains some important information that has not been widely reported, but it also makes a claim that should make every person in the United States extremely concerned. And that shook me to my core. It argues that the United States itself was funding research that might've caused the COVID-19 pandemic. And that's what I've been on about now for a year. And that is that the, the through, uh, through the, uh, the NIH and the NAID, uh, we have been funding the research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology that was carrying on research that was going on in North Carolina and in Galveston, Texas. And so these two articles go into in depth on that. And so it starts to look to me like this whole like, oh, we're afraid that that uh, that anti-Asian American hatred or anti-Asian hatred would just, you know, go off the, the, the hook or something. If we were to talk about lab leak hypothesis, maybe that's not actually the case. Maybe, just maybe they are scapegoating uh, with Asian American hatred. And what they really don't want you to know is that the United States has been funding this gain of function research, you know, the, the gain of function research goes out and it finds uh, 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 diseases. It makes them more virulent or more communicable or somehow more useful or aerosolized for, you know, for, for their, uh, programs, generally weaponization programs. They call it dual use, but you know, don't don't be fooled. These are these are weapons programs. Um but this is our research. We're not afraid that 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 there's going to be anti-Asian anti-Asian hatred. That's not what they're afraid of. They're afraid of getting caught. Can we just freaking call it what it is this is just maddening that we have to go through this like just with every single little thing why can't the government just tell the truth once in a while and so specifically this is not mere hand waving in the direction of wuhan institute of virology nicholas wade states it is based on the specific project being funded there by n IAID, the U.S. National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, Wade argues that the Wuhan Institute's project actually had, quote, the goal of making bat coronaviruses infectious to humans, and that if the virus did indeed escape from the Wuhan Institute, then the NIH will find itself in the terrible position of having funded a disastrous experiment that led to the death of more than 3 million people worldwide, including more than half a million of its own citizens. So maybe there might even be liability there. They have tremendous reason not to allow the truth to come out here. And I think that it finally actually might be coming out. If Wade Wade's 
bulletin article, if the Nicholas Wade article uh, turns out to be right in its description of the most likely scenario, that would mean that the U.S. government funded research created the pandemic. That would mean that we, the United States, are co-responsible for this jointly with China, and the United States would have caused what is probably the deadliest accident in human history. Like, whoops. You know? And, you know, it would put the lie to, like, all of this bullshit that, that we've been going through with how awful the United States has, has been dealing with the pandemic, you know, with regard to, you know, uh, making sure that, that people can stay home and and uh, and make ends meet. I mean, if this is the case, then they know how virulent it is. They knew that it was it was aerosolized much sooner than they said they did, because that's what they would have done in the lab is make sure that it's aerosolized. Um and so they would have all of this information and they would know that what they're doing by sending people out to, you know, work in 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 kitchens, for instance, in restaurants, that, that you're sending people into the most deadly areas. You're sending your lowest paid workers out there to just basically die for you is 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 if this is just like freaking, you know, the, you know. The, the the dark ages or something. And 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 I got to tell you it does feel like the dark ages right now. Now, what's even more amazing is that in 2014, the Obama administration put a moratorium on gain of function research after several alarming incidents raised worries about the safety of labs including the quote news that dozens of workers at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, might have been exposed to anthrax and that vials of smallpox had been left lying around in an NIH storeroom and that the CDC had unwittingly sent out samples of ordinary influenza virus, virus contaminated with H5N1. That was the avian, that was the bird flu that everyone was so worried about. Now, this happened in, in, in before 2014. And this is one of the reasons why I can't believe that people are not more, weren't, haven't been more alarmed about the issues with these uh, biosafety labs. I mean, you don't have to have a a, a, a memory of a, a of an elephant here. This is this is just 2014. This is only six or seven years ago, for Christ's sakes. In 2017, under Trump, the controversial practice resumed, despite what the Lancet infectious diseases characterized as uncertainty over the likelihood of an accident leading to an outbreak, epidemic, or pandemic. Anyway, so I'm going to take this down just a notch, but you know, like, you, you, you might be gathering this. This is this is very frustrating, and it's been very frustrating to uh, to watch this unfold low all these many months. Here's what Nathan Robinson is actually very good at doing in this article. He says that, um, he says that, uh, we don't have to depend on the idea of China being a malevolent homicidal actor in this, um, and that that is lunacy. There are lab origin theories that do not require malevolence, and, and, and in fact, None of them actually do. Researchers on bat coronaviruses and perfectly well-intentioned people who actually want to prevent pandemics might have accidentally let some safety precautions slip 
as we found out in those uh, diplomatic cables that were reported on by Josh Rogan in the Washington Post, uh, might have left some safety progression slip and a particularly dangerous virus can get out without them noticing. Whether researchers had made the virus more dangerous or not is its own question, but accidental escape is not some insane conspiracy. It doesn't require any conspiring. It requires human error, just basic human error, the kind that we know exists everywhere. We know it exists everywhere, and we know it especially exists in places where we're trying to cut corners, like how sometimes we send things off to China to be done in a way that wouldn't be allowed in the United States. I'm just saying, I'm just saying that that's something that happens. Um, moving on. Here's a, a little taste of, of just a reminder of what we're, we're in those diplomatic cables. Uh, the U.S. State Department said that the Wuhan facility had a, quote, serious shortage of appropriately trained technicians and investigators needed to safely operate this high containment laboratory. And this is very memorable to me. This, this, this really stands out. That a lot of the work, be, because they were having trouble uh, uh, meeting the, uh, the exact uh, parameters for operating at a level four uh, biocontainment, bio they, they started handling these viruses at a level two containment, which is essentially what your dentist office operates on. I mean, just think about that for a moment. And so here are the facts as we know them. And, and thank you, Nathan J. Robinson, for laying this out so well in uh, the current affairs story. He says, here are the facts. The virus, a coronavirus from bats, originated close to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which collects and studies coronaviruses from bats, obtaining them from parts of China that have lots of bats bringing them to Wuhan, which does not have a notable population of bats. The closest relatives of SARS-CoV-2 were found in two places, a bat cave a thousand miles from Wuhan and in Dr. Xi's bat coronavirus vibe in Wuhan, bat coronavirus lab in Wuhan. Now, Dr. Xi is also known as the bat lady. This is not something that I want to go into in chapter and verse, but uh, if you want to learn more about her, do pick up the article by uh, Nicholas Wade, and I, I'll put these links in the show notes. Fact two, there is evidence that before the pandemic, U.S. government officials thought the Wuhan lab had a shortage of people trained to operate it safely. Fact number three, the U.S. National Institutes of Health, the NIH, funded studies on bat coronaviruses at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. These may or may not have involved intentionally creating bat coronaviruses that were more easily transmitted to humans. We know that the WIV was involved with gain-of-function experiments involving bat coronaviruses in the past, 
Experiments of this type have been called madness and folly, exceedingly dangerous and absolutely crazy by some experts, so much so that the Obama administration stopped funding them in 2014 and Trump started refunding them, restarted them in 2017. So, hey, look, if you want to be consistent with this whole, like, you know, let's rob Trump of a victory, why don't you just focus on the fact that it was Trump restarting this gain-of-function research that allowed this to happen? You know, I mean, if that satisfies, you know, everyone's sense of, you know, political narrative, then go with that, for God's sakes. But at least let's try to have an honest discussion about this, for God's sakes. Real quick, Peter Danzag. Uh, one of the claims... Uh, that the Nicholas Wade's article um, proves beyond a reasonable doubt is that our understanding of COVID's origins have been compromised by the involvement of a of one person, and that is Peter Zan Danzak. Uh, this part of the story is really, really crazy. And I, I mean, it's something that you just really have to dig in to, to believe it. But Danzak is the head of an NGO called EcoHealth Alliance, a global environmental health nonprofit organization dedicated to protecting wildlife and public health from the emergence of disease. Danzak is also, I'm skipping over some stuff. Danzak is also the only U.S. member of the WHO's team the World Health Organization's team investigating the origins of COVID-19 and has been appointed by top medical journal The Lancet to chair its team investigating the origins of coronavirus. Now, his EcoHealth Alliance uh, da, 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 committed to the wildlife and the blah, blah, blah. Danzak has worked with the Wuhan Institute of Virology and the bat lady, Dr. Xi, for years and is even listed as the project leader on the NIH, NIH proposal to study the, quote, spillover potential of bat coronaviruses. His organization re received $3.7 from the NIH to study bat coronaviruses, ultimately directing $600,000 of U.S. government funds to the Wuhan Institute. Danzak is intimately connected, then, with the lab that would have been the source of the lab leak. Ta-da! So Peter Danzak has a fiduciary interest. He is he has a, a bias that is born of you know the the work that he's been doing and the grant funding and the government contracting that he's been doing. But he also has his reputation and the and the reputation of of the institutes and 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 his ability to further do work in his career. So he's been. Him being at the center of these uh, of the Who's team and the Lancet team, looking at the origins of this virus, that is completely unacceptable. So go and read this story. It is it is absolutely there's so much in here about Danzig. I'm skipping over a lot because you know I I just don't want to you know weigh you down too much. But uh, I really like right here where Nathan J. Robinson says. 
and this is him writing of, of his own experience. He says, I was dubious of Wade's analysis. Nicholas Wade, who wrote the other long article that I'm going to link in the show notes. I was dubious of Wade's analysis when I first saw it, and I am still skeptical and want to see it intensively scrutinized. But it did cause me to go back and re-examine news articles I had skimmed the first time and realized that some of the arguments against a lab accident theory were flimsy. And to feel as if the discussion was being affected by people's biases, anti-China sentiment on the right and anti-Trump sentiment among liberals and the desire to avoid subjects that could massively escalate international tension among nuclear states on the left. All of these political uh, 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 stripes here, this, this is fraught, you know. Left, right, and center. People did not want to look at the lab leak hypothesis. So he says, let me just spell out clearly what I believe happened here. Colon, I don't know. I am not arguing for a lab accident at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And, uh, and I'm not even arguing, as Wade is, that it's more probable than the alternate option explanation. And I think that's a really good place for Nathan J. Robinson to land on because he's not a scientist and I'm not a scientist. So what he says is that, uh, he, he continues, I am not saying that the negligence of the United States and China did cause this pandemic. He says, I am saying that the question of whether this could have happened is important enough to demand answers. You know, hallelujah. Like that is this is the part that has been missing from this discourse, like all along. This is very important stuff. So many people have died. Our lives have completely been been pushed out of whack. And I understand there is a lot at stake here. And some people are, if it turns out that they're at fault, that is that's going to really suck for them. Okay. But it doesn't suck any more for them than it sucks for all of us who have lost family members, lost jobs, you know, are, are, you know, have been in quarantine for over a year, et cetera, et cetera. Let's get to the bottom of this. We're better than this. We're better than the lies. We're, we're, we're better than the biases. We're better than the, 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 the political, uh, uh, fodder all, you know, let's just, Get better, you know, and, and figure this out and, and do it right this time. That's all. That's all. I want to put both of these stories, uh, all three of these stories, actually, get their links in the show notes so that you can go and read them yourself. I, this is exactly what I had intended to bring to you the last week and the week before. Uh, I've, I, sorry, I tell you what, I, I, I got sick. And you know what? It, it hasn't gone... Uh, unnoticed by myself that a, a lot of what I suffer from uh, falls under this weird, you know, kind of uh, uh, institute of allergy and infectious diseases thing, right? Like I have a post-viral sy syndrome. That is why I am a chronic disease person. Uh, it, and this happened a, a very long time ago. It seems to be I have this mast cell activation situation that a lot of people are, are dealing with. And this is also very similar to long haul COVID. The stuff that I suffer from is very similar to COVID, it, especially in the long haul. And, uh, and, and hopefully, 
and, and, and actually I'm already starting to see this, that the research that is being done on long haul COVID is shining a light on what it is that has been affecting me. And, uh, and, I wouldn't be surprised if the reason why these kind of mast cell activation problems and these chronic conditions that have become so prevalent, I wouldn't be surprised that that, that there isn't something in our environment that is uh, all of a sudden making people more susceptible to this stuff. And let me tell you, this is not something that you want to play with. You do not want to wind up like somebody with long haul COVID or somebody with, um, ME CFS fibro and, or, or this mast cell activation, this is bad freaking news. Um, if this research, if we can get to the bottom of this, all right, and we can be honest about what, what happened in Wuhan and that is the case. If that is the case, then we can take that information and it can inform how we go forward and figure out how to treat people with long haul and figure out how to treat people so that they don't contract COVID in the first place. And that is what we must do. We must reduce human suffering and by golly, you know, just, uh, you know, try to treat each other a little bit better. All right. That is it for me. Uh, next up, we have Janine Maloff with the Justice Report. And I just can't wait for this one. She is on fire this week. So hang on. here with Janine Moloff with the Justice Report this week on voter suppression, constitutional crimes, and COVID Karens in Missouri. And I think, Janine, you had a, uh, a, a secondary title to this? Oh, yes. Um, let me just get this going here, make sure everything's turned up. Oops. Yes, it is. This week's Justice Report segment is GOP criminal intent in Missouri, voter suppression, constitutional crimes and COVID Karens, or as I call it, GOP lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. <laughs> oh, right. So with that, I, I will just start. So by now, the premeditated massive voter suppression implemented by the GOP of Trump is well known and documented. In fact, the GOP of Trump has passed voter suppression bills recently in Georgia and Florida that frankly, would make Jim Crow proponents from a bygone day, such as Bull Connor and George Wallace, indeed truly proud. Additionally, you have these YouTube videos of what's been termed COVID Karens that have turned viral this past year. And everyone is well aware of Trump acolytes like Ron DeSantis of Florida, Ted Cruz, and yes, fellow Missourian Josh Hawley with his infamous fist pump on January 6th. But in my home state of Missouri, we have our share of Trumpers, but of a more subtle nature, who have actively pursued voter suppression while pushing the other big lie that COVID is a hoax. At the national level, we, we all know about Josh Hawley because, you know, poor little Joshy is constantly whining about totally non-existent crimes against the GOP of Trump, but we have other politicians who definitely could give little Joshy, as I call him, a run for his sellout money. So this episode will discuss the premeditated assault on democracy with 
a very, char well, I don't know if it's charming, with a Midwestern understated twist. The main characters in this drama are all members of the Missouri GOP. Now, politicians here in Missouri prefer to remain in the background as they count their ill-gotten gains. And Roy Blunt is a perfect example of this duplicity as he watches to see which way the publicity wind blows. So, but th there are others. So, excuse me, I will summarize. There are others. So I will attempt to summarize the attack on democracy, the nature of the attacks, and the players. So first, here are our players. First, at the top of the ticket, you have U.S. Senators Roy Blunt, and of course, can't miss little Joshy Hawley, though they are the obvious figureheads. And since their national positions are there in full bloom, so the entire world can see their vast moral bankruptcy and utter lack of ethics, they'll remain in the background for this report. Rather, I will focus on the politicians who are not in the news as often, and they are as follows. Missouri Governor Mike Parsons, Missouri Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft, and various state GOP politicians. So here we go. Take a little water here. <clears throat> so here we go, presenting fascism with a smiley face from the show me state, which rivals DeSantis of Florida and others in terms of their not only illegitimacy, but utter hypocrisy. So my documents start with this one from ABC National News last October, Governor Parson's very ignorant and malfeasant COVID policy. First, we'll start with the non-existent mask policy in Missouri. So ABC News reported on October 6, 2020, on their national, national page, the following headline. And this was by Ju the writer with Julio Jacobo. The headline was, Missouri Governor Mike Parson got COVID-19 after refusing mask mandate, and so did 1,800 state employees. Now, you can't miss the irony, okay? So... Excuse me, Governor Parsons came down with COVID, along with some 1,800 state employees under his purse. And this happened. I mean, consider a statewide mask mandate um, last year. And this is, again, according to um, ABC News. Um, and, you know, the stupidity of this policy doesn't need any further explanation. But, you know, Governor Parsons would make the original typhoid Mary proud. So there were four staffers in Parsons' office that tested positive as well, and they recovered. But approximately 1,842 of some 50, 53,000 state employees were infected. And that was according to uh, some figures kept by the Post, St. Louis Post-Dispatch. And that was based on data from the Missouri Office of Administration. The hardest hit agencies were the following, the Department of Corrections with 646 cases, the Department of Mental Health with 393, and the Department of Public Safety with 211, according to that data. Over the summer, Parsons kept uh, saying that masks were really silly. Uh, to quote Governor Parsons, it was a quote obtained by the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, right uh, let's see. Yeah, right after he came down with it. Quote, you don't need government to tell you to wear a danged mask. 
And he, he made this, and he went on to say, quote, if you want to wear a dang mask, wear a mask. And he made this statement while he was not wearing a mask in an uh, event in Sedalia. And apparently he just loves that word dang, spelled D-A-N-G. You couldn't get more stereotypical, could you? So in August of last year, Parsons questioned whether guidelines for masks or social distancing, distancing were effective at all. Uh, so Mike Parsons, Governor Parsons told the Springfield News Leader last August, um, quote, but at the end of the day, someone's, someone's got to take those guidelines and say, are we willing to do that? Are we willing to give up gatherings? Are we willing to do social distancing, end quote? So Parsons remained isolated while, uh, after he was diagnosed with COVID for 10 days, according to the Post-Dispatch. My question is this. After you were diagnosed with COVID, isn't the isolation period supposed to be 14 days, not 10? And then right after he came back to work, after 10 days of isolation, not, for, not the necessary 14, he had several ceremonies and a fundraiser in multiple cities that were on his schedule. And he was he even issued a recorded video that was posted to Facebook saying that he and his wife um, just had some mild cold-like symptoms and nothing more. And to quote this post that he had on Facebook, quote, Teresa and I are so grateful that we are two of well over 100,000 Missourians that have recovered from the virus. We are glad to be back and want to, again, thank everyone for their thoughts and prayers. This just shows you how utterly inept Mike Parsons is, okay? Just the most basic thing. You know, we're talking about social distancing and masking. This is just basic medical protocols that have been established for decades for any airborne, highly contagious pathogen. It's not rocket science, but the ignorance here is beyond the pale. So then Governor Parsons again, now he's on um, Neil Cavuto, and this is on the COVID vaccine rollout, okay, the initial one. And this was, sorry about that, this was, the, the title was after shortchanging urban areas, Governor Bragg's about vaccine rollout in Missouri. And I had said this earlier, uh, you know, basically what we have here in Missouri, or rather what we had in Missouri is this situation where, um, okay, where basically in the initial stages of the vaccine rollout, where it was supposed to uh, prioritize people with certain uh, medical conditions that made them vulnerable, uh, that had immune problems, and the elderly, the population centers of St. Louis, St. Louis County, and Kansas City became virtual vaccine deserts while there was an oversupply in these small rural areas. Like there's this little town of Leopold, Missouri, and I contacted Department of Health. I contacted Governor Parsons' office multiple times. Uh, one week, Leopold, Missouri, which I think the grand total population is like maybe 500 people, the whole town. And what did they get? Over 1,200 vaccines in one week, one day. And meanwhile, you couldn't you couldn't find a vaccine in St. Louis. So here's what happened. Parsons was on Neil Cavuto, and he was bragging um, about the vaccine rollout. All right, and 
you know, again, this is after he refused to implement a state, statewide mask mandate. I've called his office many times. They say this is basically your own personal feelings about it. Again, the ignorance is beyond belief. So he was talking to Neil Cavuto. And these shortages in the urban areas specifically, which are the population centers, were well documented by not only ABC News, NBC, CBS, and Fox at the local level, but also by the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, which is the newspaper here. So anyway, Parson responded to criticism. Finally, after many reports showed that people that were uh, very ill or the elderly in St. Louis and other urban areas had to drive for hours to rural Missouri to get vaccinated. And that was as documented once again by St. Louis Today, St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Uh, there were instances, it was quite common, you know, you'd make your appointment and the appointment would be like 200, 300 miles away at one way that is. There were Missourians driving from St. Louis at the Eastern point of the state driving all the way practically to the Iowa border in one day to obtain a vaccine, okay? So after these reports showed that Parsons had misdirected vaccine, he lashed out at reporters, denied what was plain to everyone else they saw happening right there. Rural counties in Missouri um, really were unable to find enough people to fill up mass vaccination events. And according, according to the Post-Dispatch, there were thousands of surplus doses, but in urban areas, it was a vaccine desert, okay? Local, official, local officials complained, according to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch again, quote, the St. Louis region with approximately 2.2 million people represented 37% of the state's population, was getting only about 17% of the state's allocation of vaccine in that one month, end quote. Finally, the state agreed to, quote, adjust the vaccine distribution but only after as, as many as 30% of residents in those urban areas basically had to drive long distance to get vaccinated. Kansas City Mayor Quentin Lucas uh, finally made a request for the federal government to step in. And that was according to St. Louis Post-Dispatch to quote, establish COVID-19 mass vaccination sites in the city amid widespread anger that Missouri's urban areas aren't receiving more doses. Um, and again, Parsons kept bragging about how well the rollout went. Um, and so he's talking to Cavuto and there's this, this, you know, Fox's Neil Cavuto. And so there's this little dialogue going on and, um, you know, Governor Parsons just lies. Okay. So Cavuto says, so let's talk a little bit about what your vaccine kind of rules are, who gets to the front of line, how big is that line? What are you doing? And this is at the very beginning, you know, I myself, I have COPD. I was diagnosed over 25 years ago, never smoked. I was one of those people that was supposed to be among some of the first. I didn't get my second dose until the first week that it was open to everyone else. So Parsons responded, yeah, quote, you know, the main priority we've had is the same plan we said in October, the CDC. We we're absolutely executing that plan just like it was originally put together and making sure we're not doing knee-jerk reactions to everybody wanting to jump the line. Our biggest priority is people 65 years and older, the most vulnerable population in our state, and we stay focused on that. Next week, we'll go, we'll go teachers. We'll go to utility workers. We'll go to the next level. But, but for, 
I'm sorry, but that's frankly several weeks ahead of it. And right now we're second in the United States, the lowest positivity rate in the country. And we have that going because of things we've done and we never shut our state down. We never shut it down, shut it down for the state of Missouri. We never did the mandates from the governor's office. And so I think a combination of staying with the vaccine plan and making sure we get that done and having the National Guard, uh, yaddy, and it goes on and on and on. Okay, end quote. Keep in mind, the lower rate in St. Louis was be and in St. Louis County was because St. Louis City, St. Louis County had mask mandates. The rural areas did not. So, you know, once again, uh, basically Governor Parsons goes on, he says, um, quote, so there's not enough vaccine. We understand that everybody does, but I mean, it's all hands on deck right now and we're putting needles in people's arms putting that want it, end quote. And my response is, yeah, unless you live in the city and you can't afford to go off work and drive for eight hours to get one, okay? And, you know, keep in mind, this was Fox's Neil Cavuto. Fox isn't news, Fox is right-wing propaganda, let's get real. So that's another thing, you know, basically what Governor Parsons did is the the head of public um, health in St. Louis City and St. Louis County for calling them out and saying they're not receiving vaccine. Now, our State Department of Health was headed by somebody who was a disaster elsewhere. And, you know, again, Dr. I think it was Randall Williams. He's gone now, but, you know, he was by his specialty medically was OBGYN why we had an OBGYN in charge of public health in the state of Missouri instead of somebody who is an expert in epidemiology or virology is beyond me, but that's what they did. So why did Governor Parsons appear to misdirect COVID vaccine from major population centers? Well, I have my ideas and my opinion. Let's keep in mind Missouri racial demographics. Rural areas in Missouri are as close to 100% white as you can get without visiting segregated white areas in South Africa before the rise of Nelson Mandela. That's not his, that's not hyperbole, it's true. The urban areas are where you find communities of color and Parsons knows this. And keep in mind, the GOP in Missouri despises St. Louis City and they despise parts of St. Louis County that are not GOP. Parsons knows this. In my opinion, this misdirection of COVID vaccine was not an accident. It was premeditated and criminal. In my opinion, I believe that Governor Mike Parsons criminally misdirected COVID vaccine and it may have cost lives. So let's move on. There's more. NPR's national page. Again, Governor Parsons, along with the Missouri legislature, just this past May 13th, a couple, basically a couple weeks ago, uh, NPR's Becky Sullivan on the national page headline, Missouri will not expand Medicaid despite voters' wishes, Governor says. Now, keep in mind, here in Missouri, we had a, a voter-initiated, a, a voter-started ballot initiative to change, to actually amend the Missouri Constitution to allow for Medicaid expansion and be able to accept those federal dollars, which pay for most of it anyway. And 
this wasn't just a regular ballot initiative that was statutory. This was an actual constitutional amendment to the Missouri Constitution. Because here in Missouri, we've had too many times where the GOP-controlled legislature took a ballot initiative that was a voter mandate, direct voters, that was at the statute level, though, not a constitutional change, and then they just repealed it and disregarded what a majority of voters wanted. So they knew they had to go the constitutional amendment route. And Missouri has one of the stingiest Medicaid policies in the entire United States. So, you know, last week, the week of the 13th, Parsons announced that the state was not going to implement the mandated, the voter mandated constitutionally approved amendment will not will not implement Medicaid expansion in direct defiance of that ballot measure. Okay. And the decision, Parsons blamed the, the legislature saying, well, they didn't appropriate funds for the expansion, for our part of the expansion. So we're not going to, I'm not going to implement this mandate then. Keep in mind, Governor Parsons and the GOP-led legislature in Missouri have, with premeditation, chosen to disobey a duly passed voter-initiated constitutional amendment that would mandate Medicaid expansion. Seriously. And this, this has very serious ramifications all over the country. These, the GOP of Trump thinks that if the vote goes against them, then the legislature at the state level can just disregard it. It means that our votes mean nothing. It is a form of disenfranchisement, if you will. You vote, but your vote doesn't count. So here's the statement that Parsons gave. Quote, although I was never in support of Missouri Health Net expansion, Missouri Health Net is the Medicaid program in Missouri. I always said that I would uphold the ballot amendment if it passed. However, without a revenue source or funding authority from the General Assembly, we are unable to proceed with the expansion at this time and must withdraw our state plan amendments to ensure Missouri's existing Mo Health Net program remains solvent, end quote. Okay. And Parsons went on to say, quote, um, in a, after comments from reporters, quote, I don't want to speculate what the courts will do because there's going to be court challenges because there's a lot of moving parts to this. You know, there's going to be court actions on both sides, I'm sure. Okay. The thing is this, it was a duly passed constitutional amendment that mandated Medicaid expansion so they could accept federal dollars to fully fund it. It doesn't matter if the GOP-controlled legislature refused to fund it. That does not give the governor an out to say, I'm going to disobey this voter mandate. He was actually duly required to, to, to implement the mandate and, if need be, just go send it back to the legislature and say, I have to implement this. We have to have a, find a way to get the funding. He didn't have a choice in this, and yet he did. He just basically, excuse my language, he chicken shit it out so that he could blame it on the legislature. Okay. So Democrats had a predictable 
you know, response as well. The Missouri, the House Minority Leader, uh, Democrat Crystal Way, I'm sorry, Crystal Quaid, excuse me, was quoted as saying, quote, by backtracking on implementation of Medicaid expansion, Governor Parsons is breaking his promise to the people of the state and violating his oath to uphold the Missouri Constitution. And she's right. She went on to say, quote, Medicaid expansion will still happen as the Constitution requires. Because of the governor's dishonorable action, it will take a court order to do it. And she's right. The American Cancer Society in Missouri urged the governor to reconsider, and they issued a statement, quote, cancer patients cannot wait for legal battles to access the life-saving coverage that Medicaid expansion provides. And this was a statement sent by Emily Calmer, who is the government relations director in Missouri. Um, there's more to this article. Missouri's current Medicaid program is, as I said, the stingiest, the most restrictive, or one of the most restrictive in the entire U.S. In order to qualify for Medicaid help, a family of three has to earn less than 21% of the federal poverty level, which in 2021, that amount was just $5,400. Okay, I'm going to say that again. To qualify for Medicaid in Missouri, a family of three can't earn over $5,400. Just let that sink in. How utterly, the, the, the absolute cruelty of it. If you're a childless adult, you don't qualify at all. No way. Then last August, 53% of the voters in Missouri, which is a deep red state usually, they approved this ballot measure to raise the limit to 138% of the federal poverty level. So this is a slightly different ballot measure. So I stand corrected. So let me backtrack a little bit because I want to make sure that I'm being accurate. Last August, there was another ballot measure and it raised the limit to basically qualify for Medicaid help to 138% of federal poverty level, which would be 17, they couldn't earn over $17,774 for a single adult, and a family of four couldn't earn more than $37,570. Before that ballot initiative, a family of three that earned over $5,400 would not qualify. I just want the cruelty of that to sink in. And childless adults don't qual didn't qualify at all. Okay. So this would have made Missouri the 38th state to expand Medicaid access under the Affordable Care Act. Uh, there was an analysis done by Washington University in St. Louis, and they, they um, documented that some 271,500 Missourians would most likely enroll under this expanded coverage, which was supposed is supposed to take effect, you know, this July. The same study found that Medicaid expansion actually would result in budget savings for the state. Haven't expanded Medicaid yet, and this was when the bill was enacted. It includes Missouri. So Missouri would get an extra five percent. So now we're talking. 95%, at least in the first year, would be funded by the feds, and definitely 90% afterwards for the expansion. So that would have saved Missouri an extra $1 billion, with a B, 
according to the federal estimate. But Republicans, the GOP in Missouri, they they keep saying that Medicaid expansion is an expense they cannot afford. Get this. Even as the state has reported that they have an estimated 1.1 billion with a B budget surplus. So, and that announcement about the budget surplus came two days after Parsons announced that Missouri would join several other Republican-controlled states as they end participation in federal pandemic-related unemployment benefits. Okay? Seriously. So Mayor Quentin Lucas of Kansas City uh, stated on Twitter, quote, what did hardworking Missourians and those looking for work do to have Missouri's majority party deny them increased wages, survival subsidies funded by the feds, and health care funded by the feds? For the many of us who have known struggle, it's just cruel. And Mayor, Luke, Mayor Quentin Lucas is very right. So now, getting back to the many crimes of decent against decency, if nothing else, by Mayor uh, by Governor Parsons, U.S. News and World Report. Um, basically, as the G- Missouri GOP works to disregard a voter mandate and basically an amendment to the Missouri Constitution as well. So this was a piece um, written, looks like by the Associated Press. The headline is Missouri lawmakers ask for special session on election laws. So here's where we're getting to join the ranks of Georgia and Florida when it comes to voter suppression and Jim Crow 2.0. So there was a small group of Missouri lawmakers that asked uh, Governor Parsons to call a special session coming up soon on state election laws. And this story was dated May 12th, just, you know, again, that same week. So as reported by also U.S. News, they went seven Republicans on the House Elections Committee wrote a letter to Governor Parsons because they're worried election law priorities won't pass by the deadline of, I think was what, last Friday? Let me see. That's Yeah, it would have been like Friday the 14th. they ident- the U.S. News and World Report identified Republican Representative Dan Shaw, who's the Election Committee's chairman, um, and said that legislation that would require voters to show voter ID again at the polls should pass. Originally, Missouri had a law like that, and they went to we went to court, and the court said, "No, you don't. You can't require voter ID." Okay. Um, he also said lawmakers needed to change the rules for putting for policy proposals on the ballot which is even worse. We're going to get into that in a few minutes. So from the letter, Shaw wrote to Parson, here's Representative Dan Shaw, quote, unfortunately, these important issues are being held up in the Senate. On behalf of our constituents across the state of Missouri, my colleagues and I ask you to call a special session upon adjournment of our current legislative session to address election priorities. And Parson's spokesperson did not return an Associated Press request for comment that day. So now the next GOP politician determined to implement Jim Crow 2.0, along with Governor Parsons, is Missouri's Secretary of State, Jay Ashcroft. And if that name sounds familiar, it should. Jay Ashcroft is the son of the very very former U.S. Attorney General under George W. Bush that helped to make torture technically legal, namely John Ashcroft. And as it turns out, as far as Jay's concerned, the homely apple doesn't fall far from the fascist tree. So this is from St. Louis National Public Radio. 
And it was a this is an interview conversation uh, that was held. Uh, let's see now, May third, a couple weeks ago, between let's it, let's see, it was J, let's see Jason Rosenbaum and Noel King, and Mallory Rush. Oh, and Justin Hill and Jay. They have some sound bites of of Jay Ashcroft and some others. So let's get into it. Um, Noel King was the host, and he quote said, "People in Missouri voted in a ballot initiative to expand access to Medicaid, but the state's Republican-controlled legislature say it won't provide the money to do that, even though one more time it's what voters voted for." Here's Jason Rosenbaum from St. Louis Public Radio. Okay, so. Rosenbaum explained the situation again, quote, last year, Missouri voters approved a ballot initiative bolstering Medicaid in the state. Advocates for the change were ecstatic, but the GOP-controlled legislator had other ideas. It's refusing to fund expansion. Mallory Rush of the anti-poverty group in Power, Missouri, says the Republican intransigence on Medicaid is part of a deeper issue, the hostility to voter initiatives. She said this to a crowd at the Missouri Capitol in Jefferson City. Man, she said, legislators, this is Mallory Rush, this is a soundbite. Legislators are inside, trained to subvert our will and deny funding to implement expansion. Rush went on to say, this, ladies and gentlemen, is why we need a strong initiative petition process. Okay. Um, then there was another soundbite, and this was of GOP lawmaker Representative Justin Hill, who argued that his colleagues, his GOP colleagues, have to act as a backstop against ideas that they think sound nice but have negative consequences. So here's the sound by Justin Hill says, so I'm proud to stand against the will of the people who were lied to because that's our job. We took an oath to protect our citizens. Um, and then Rosenbaum went on to say, quote, but Missouri lawmakers aren't just trying to undo particular ballot initiatives. Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft wants to make it more difficult for constitutional amendments to pass in the first place. And here's this, I'm just reading from the sound by Jay Ashcroft. The people elected the legislators to represent them. We are not a democracy. I'm going to read this again. This is a soundbite, the, the, basically the, uh, uh, the text of the soundbite directly from Jay Ashcroft. Quote, the people elected the legislators to represent them. We are not a democracy. We are a constitutional republic. The very same people that vote on these things elected overwhelmingly Overwhelming majority of legislators that tend to agree that legislation and amendments to our Constitution should go through the legislature, end quote. Okay. So this goes on, but I think that says a lot about Jay Ashcroft. He's used he's using the this is a this is a constitutional republic, not a, an actual democracy excuse. So I'm gonna move on. So Again, pardon my language, what in the hell is going on in Missouri and who is behind these anti-democracy moves? Good point. So writing for the Missouri Coalition for the Environment is Jay Devanini, who is a food and farm policy intern. This is a really good article, though. He did a great job. And the headline is the Missouri General Assembly's Anti-Democracy Legislation Explained. So I'm going to go into this. And again, this is all happening with Jay Ashcroft's blessing. OK, he's just sitting back and letting these legislators do his dirty work for him as he advances up the GOP ladder. He's doing my Jay Ashcroft, in my opinion, is doing a Roy Blunt. Waiting to see which way the wind blows. 
and then just going with it. And that, that takes a special type of ethical cowardice. So anyway, the Missouri General Assembly, according to this article, is considering a dozen joint resolutions. But if, if they were approved, they would do several things, one of which would make it harder for everyday people like me to initiate and approve amendments to the Missouri Constitution. Now, here's the ironic part, according to this guy. The joint these joint resolutions that the GOP is pushing are themselves proposing amendments to the Constitution, which requires voter approval. So that means that if any of these items are passed by the General Assembly, then voters would, quote, be asked to approve a constitutional amendment that would hinder their own ability to directly participate in the democratic process, end quote. So in other words, if these, if, if these amendments to the Missouri Constitution um, are passed by the General Assembly, they still require voter approval. So the GOP has, the, has so much gall that they're, and they think the public's so stupid here that they will vote to basically, in part, disenfranchise themselves to limit access to the ballot initiative when you have a rogue legislature that is not, do, that is not following the law, period. So Missouri Coalition for the Environment opposes the legislation, obviously, um, and because, and I agree with them, Missouri's current system of direct democracy is the only way, the, the direct initiative is the only way we can get any sort of accountability from the GOP here. And so the joint resolutions, there's so, there's so many of them. There's HJR 2, 5, 9, 14, 15, 20, 21, 22, 25, 26, 27, and then SJR 2, 11, 13, and 19. So what would these joint resolutions do? First of all, they make it harder for Missourians to put constitutional amendments on the ballot themselves. And it would also make it harder for Missourians to approve those constitutional amendments if they make it on the ballot. Now, most of the time, constitutional amendments in Missouri that make it on the ballot are referred by the legislature, okay? And sometimes initiated by Missourians through this initiative petition process. It's the petition process that is what's really under attack. Right now, under current Missouri law, if you want to get a constitutional amendment on the ballot using the initiative petition process, the petitions you gather must be signed by 8% of legal voters, quote, in each of two-thirds of the state's congressional districts, which means right now six of the state's eight districts, okay? Many of the joint resolutions that are being considered want to increase the signature requirement from 8% to either 10, 12, or 15%. Okay, that's bad, but not... It, what's coming up is far worse. At the same time, they want to up the percentage of, or, of signatures required. They also want to require that the threshold be met in every congressional district. So instead of six out of eight districts, that threshold would have to be met in eight out of eight, which is very difficult to do. In fact, in the GOP's own notes, their own fiscal notes for these joint resolutions, the Joint Committee on Legislative Research Oversight Division has an estimate that these resolutions would increase the number of required signatures by anywhere from 64,000 to 260,000 voters. 
and that depends on the resolution. That's a huge increase. Missouri's not a big state. But the idea is to basically introduce what are really just Jim Crow barriers to direct democracy here in Missouri. And it's already hard enough in Missouri. Uh, and so even if they get, even if we get an amendment on the ballot, through all that, Republicans in the General Assembly are also proposing that they want to increase the percentage of votes required to approve the amendment. Right now in Missouri, you only need a simple majority of votes to approve amendments to the Constitution. But these joint resolutions would increase that percentage to either 60% from 51% to to 60% of votes cast to or two-thirds of votes cast, or even, get this, a majority of registered Missouri voters regardless of the number of votes cast. Now, that last part of it is really problematic because it would res- it would result in raising the threshold to something that's really prohibitively high because here in Missouri, many elections don't, don't even achieve a 50% voter turnout. So it would be almost impossible to pass an amendment. And so the other, what's even worse is the joint resolution Here's the, here's the other kicker. I'm going to quote directly. This joint resolution only apply, quote, only applies this standard to constitutional amendments that arise from initiative peti- petitions, in other words, the popular vote. Quote, leaving the approval process for legislatively referred constitutional amendments untouched. So you'd have basically a a double system, if you will, where voter initiatives would be truly Jim Crow, made it much harder to pass a voter initiative. But if it comes from the legislature and is voted in legislature, nothing changes. Okay. And this double standard does represent a discriminatory approach, which is illegitimate. Again, another Jim Crow thing. So why are Missouri legislators pushing this thing, especially on constitutional amendments? What's the difference? I'm going to tell you. Okay. First of all, the legislators, the GOP that are supporting these Jim Crow proposals to limit ballot initiatives in Missouri, they there are three main reasons or their excuses is that they believe, one, the Missouri Constitution, being a foundational document, should only be altered if there's really a broad consensus of people. They also want to cut down on the number of petitions being filed especially the ones they consider to be haphazard or frivolous. And three, they want to deter out-of-state special interest groups from having a say in Missouri's affairs. All right. But here's here's really what it's about. You know, you ask, okay, why now? This ballot initiative process has been in Missouri since 1908. Well, Republicans have been losing on the ballot initiatives lately. That's why. Uh, Excuse me. There have been several progressive amendments that were initiated by members of the public and approved just over the last five years. That included Medicaid expansion, that included medical marijuana legalization, and then something called the Clean Missouri Amendment, which would restrict campaign contributions and create a new redistricting process. GOP doesn't like that. And this guy from the Coalition of Environment admits Missouri Constitutional is a foundational document. They're not proposing. You know, the, 
progressives aren't proposing anything that's frivolous, okay? But many of the GOP have argued that the initiative statute process, this is really what it's about. In Missouri, the, the, Repub the initiative statute process, which allows people like you or me to propose laws, um, those laws are much easier to repeal if the GOPers don't like it. Much harder to repeal constitutional amendments. That's what this is all about. So give you an example on the campaign contribution limits. Missouri voters use the initiative statute process, that is, to push campaign contribution limits in 1994. And that was according to Ballotpedia. And then, but that law was repealed by the GOP General Assembly in 08, according to the Columbian Missourian. So Missourians decided to pursue new limits and they decided to go the constitutional amendment route using a ballot initiative, voter approved, because it's harder to repeal that. And so they did, and they repealed clean. So basically, after a few bumps, okay, voters established new limits through the Clean Missouri Amendment in 2018. Then legislators succeeded, and they repealed the Clean Missouri's redistricting requirements with a voter-approved amendment in 2020. But the campaign contribution limits remained intact because it was a constitutional amendment, so it was harder to repeal. So that's what this is really about. If you using a petition, initiative petition process, which is a popular vote, if you go the statutory route, it's easier for the GOPers in the legislature to repeal. If you go the constitutional amendment route, it is harder for them to repeal and disregard and disobey what the voters want. And it's the only true way through constitutional amendments that Missourians can make their voices heard. That's it. Okay. And, you know, it would be good if the GOPers would respect the statutes that we pass. All right. But they don't. This is all it is to it. Um, so now the General Assembly is trying to reduce the number of petitions. And there's two bills, SB 149 and HB 333. Get this. Those bills, again, for petition, you know, initiative petitions created by the people. There'd be a $500 filing fee for petitions. Now, the $500 will be refunded if the petition is certified and makes it onto the ballot, okay? But very few petitions actually make it to the ballot. And there's a lot of low-income individuals, low-income groups that cannot afford that $500 filing fee because some of these petitions are started just by regular people, not by any sort of dark money group or anything like that. And, you know, again, there's more. So let me get to it. Um, this, those bills would also have a chilling effect on the petition, petitioning process itself. Um, it, with the Secretary of State's office, J.F. Croft's office, estimates there would be a 75% reduction in the number of petitions that are filed, according uh, to SenateMo.gov, uh, just because of that increase in charges. And the bills also would require all the signatures on a there's more. So these bills that I just mentioned, SB 149 and HB 333 would also require that all the signatures on a petition would be invalidated, quote, get this, quote, if a court orders a substantial change to the official ballot title, okay, now, end quote. So 
let me explain this really fast. It's the court isn't saying that the signatures of the petition would be invalidated if there was a substantial change to the language in the initiative. Only a change to the official ballot title. So my question is, what legitimate right does any court have to invalidate signatures on an initiative petition because of a change to the ballot title, as long as the substance of the issue remains unchanged? Okay. So they go on, and there's more. There's a whole list of things here. It's, it's unbelievable. Um, you know, this there's a there's a uh, Missouri Coalition for the Environment has a 2021 Missouri legislature legislature bill tracker. You can check this stuff yourself. Um, you know, again, there's. HJR 25 modifies, modifies provisions for amending the Constitution, requires a majority of registered voters in the state to pass a constitutional amendment rather than a majority of votes cast. This is basically, and this is basically a lot of trickery and deceit to stack the rules so it is virtually impossible. It, this is the 20, 21st century equivalent in terms of legal language to the old, guess how many marbles are in this giant jar nonsense. Seriously. And it has no real legitimacy. None whatsoever. And you can go through it. And, you know, and, and once again, Jay Ashcroft is totally on board with this. And of course, why wouldn't he be? So, you know, in conclusion, there's more, and we will be talking about it in the future. But as you can see, the GOP of Trump wants to steal away any popular Democratic tools from the public, unless, of course, that public happens to represent deep Trumpers. Here in Missouri, the legislature is controlled by the GOP because here in Missouri, there's an entire host of really small towns with tiny populations who are able to send representatives and state senators, in essence, a minority of rural people numerically control the legislature because there are more microscopic towns than urban centers such as St. Louis, St. Louis, St. Louis County and Kansas City. You know, we have towns as small, like like I mentioned before, Leopold, Missouri. I think it's 500 people in the whole town. OK, they get to send somebody. And, and the fact is, you have this case and we have the same problem in the in the um, U.S. Senate where states as small as Wyoming and Montana get the same two senators as California that has 10 times the population. There is no fairness in that. But that's how the GOP controls. It just is. Um, and that's what we're dealing with. And why are they doing this? Why is Parsons, why is Jay Ashcroft, why are these Republicans in Jeff City determined to change these things? Well. This is racism and economic caste. The population centers, especially St. Louis City, parts of St. Louis County and Kansas City, which is Kansas City, Missouri, not Kansas City, Kansas, are where the where communities of color may, mainly live. And the rural areas where a lot of whites live, as well as parts of St. Louis County. And so this is an instance to basically make sure that there is white supremacy control over our state. Nothing more. Nothing more. The fact that Governor Parsons violated his oath of office 
by refusing to implement a duly passed state constitutional amendment is enough to charge him, in my opinion, with criminal misconduct in office. Period. End of story. And the fact that the Missouri Attorney General, Eric Schmidt, will not do such a thing, I'm sure, only speaks to his sense of collusion, if you will. Keep in mind, Eric Schmidt, our Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt, joining with other attorney generals in the whole stop the steal process and contributing to the big lie and the insurrection on January 6th. But when a governor commits an obvious act of criminal misconduct in office and by one, misdirecting vaccine that hurt people and by two, refusing to implement a mask mandate, which again, that may not be criminal misconduct, it's, it's irresponsible. But three, by refusing to respect and obey a duly passed constitutional amendment. That's it. And again, why? It's all about racism and economic chaos. That's it. And Trump rules in big parts of this state. And it is about time, not just going to court. We need to hold the attorney generals, not just at the federal level, but also at each state level accountable. Whether it's their own party or not, when there appears to be criminal misconduct, they need to do their duty. And I'm challenging Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt to do his. I doubt if he will, but I'm challenging it. So that's my justice report for this week. And that's it for us two here at PNN. We'll see you next week. Thanks for being with us. <laughs>